I want to welcome you all to the Global Mission Health Conference 2019. This breakout session is called Toward a Theology of Suffering. The uh, book says actually A Theology of Suffering. That was the original working title, but as I've been working through the process of pulling this together, I realized that was a really naive kind of title because, yeah, it is a theology, but we're really moving toward a theology of suffering. It's a growth process. So I want to dispel the idea right here at the very beginning that I think that I have the answers that you're looking for. I don't want you to think that I have the answers you're looking for. We need to think together what does this look like, um, what is a way to understand suffering and a way to approach the concept of suffering. Uh, We live in a world where many, many, many people who have grown up in the church are now walking away from faith because of the question of the goodness of God and the suffering that exists in this world or the presence of evil. And this is a very, very real situation. And so we need to think in these terms and we need to prepare ourselves well for... um, Yeah, it sounds like I'm working. So, thank you. Appreciate it. Um, We need to prepare ourselves to think how to think when it comes to this idea of suffering. So, I wanted to put myself into a context before we move into the actual discussion. And the first thing I'd like to say is who I am. I'm Bob Hay. It's my wife, Amy. Uh, Amy's not here with me. Uh, We have served with SIM for the last 16 years. And 15 years prior to that, we served with another agency in the country of Japan. And so we were involved in church planting. We raised our sons in Japan. They were two and three years old when we went. Um, They made it into middle school. And then we came back to the States in 2003. Not because our sons went to middle school. But uh, in 2003, the Lord redirected on a number of different levels. And... um, Part of that story is a story of suffering. And I'm not going to unpack all of that. You're free to ask me later, but I don't want to take the time to unpack all of that. But I want you to know that I'm standing before you not as somebody who believes he has all the answers, but I am somebody who has walked a pilgrimage of suffering. I've walked through it. I've helped other people through it. And I am constantly wrestling with with the absolute conviction of the goodness of God. I'm starting out with that statement. I have no doubt about the goodness of God. But we're going to talk about that as we move on through. But to put me into a context, I mentioned 16 years with SIM. Uh, Another way that I can answer that is that I've been 55 years with SIM. I was born in 1964 in the country of Nigeria. My parents were there serving at that time. And uh, in 1965, they returned to the United States. Um, So I came to the U.S. in 1965. But uh, we were here because my father's role changed within SIM. My grandparents left Scotland in 1918 and went to Nigeria and pushed up into the interior of Nigeria and served with SIM from 1918 until 1965. So there's a bit of a history and there's a theme that's going on. I have shared with other people, um, I've said this to others earlier today in another context, I'm not in the family business because it is the family business, but God clearly led my wife and me both to serve in Japan for those years and then in the redirection coming into SIM. And um, so it's an organization I know well from the inside. But when we were in Japan... You may know this about Japan, that Shinto is one primary religion and Buddhism is the other primary religion. And Shinto and Buddhism for Japanese are so commingled that most people don't know the difference between the two. Most Japanese people don't. They just, it's what it means to be Japanese. You, you think Buddhist when things are ending and you think Shinto when things are beginning. So the day starts in Shinto and ends in Buddhism. You know, it's kind of a back and forth, ebb and flow kind of approach to things. So we, in our entire time in Japan, we wrestled with the question of suffering. Because the, what Buddhism, as you may know, started out um, by a man named Gautama, who was Siddhartha before he became Gautama, then he became the Buddha. But as he went through those 
process is he was frustrated because Hinduism did not resolve the questions that he had relative to suffering. And so as he approached this idea of suffering, he was led into this belief that he ended up developing and we now know as Buddhism. But everything revolves around the fact of there are four noble truths and the first noble truth is that this is a world of suffering. So this concept of suffering is central to the Japanese thinking. So our approach to the gospel in that context had to be from the perspective of suffering. I wasn't trained for that. When I was in seminary, when I grew up in church, when I went to Sunday school, I was in youth group and I went to Bible college, I went to seminary, I was trained on evangelism and pastoral ministries and all of those different things. And I don't remember one single class that focused on the question of suffering. I wasn't prepared for it. But I faced it on a daily basis. It was part of life. So this is the context that I'm coming to you from. I'm not a barefoot shoe salesman. I'm not talking about something that's theoretical, but it's something that I've lived. And my wife and I have walked through suffering together. We have walked through suffering individually as a married couple, but also the two of us together as we have walked through hard things that have impacted our family. Some of it was because we lived in Japan. Some of it was not. Some of it was because of other people. Some of it was not. But the, that ongoing understanding and wrestling with the question of suffering. So again, I'm not coming to you because I have answers. I'm coming to you because I've been working on this for a long time. And I'm sharing with you some of the things, and I will be sharing with you, some of the things that I've wrestled with and have come to. And we'll come back to that in a couple minutes. But I'm part of an organization, and I've already mentioned the fact that I'm not in the family business because it is the family business. But you might have seen the name SIM or SIM as we're sometimes known, and you might have wondered what we're about and what we do. Well, we are not a medical mission, but we have a lot of medical opportunities and a lot of medical professionals that serve with us. And as an organization that started by a Canadian, an American, and a Brit, and I know that sounds like the beginning of a bar joke. <laughs> no. But a Canadian, an American, and a Brit gathered together at a prayer meeting, and they um, had this burden that the Lord placed upon them to move up into the interior of what was then known as the Sudan. We now know it as Nigeria. But in that point in time in 1893 it was the Sudan so they moved in and they got started and from the very beginning we've been intentionally interdenominational and intentionally multinational all three of them came from different denominational backgrounds and each of the mergers that has happened through the years that has taken us out of West Africa and around the world into all the 70 plus countries we're in now each of those mergers has been with organizations that had the same DNA starting out as interdenominational and multinational. So that's part of who we are, what we do. We operate on the belief that um, we are convinced that no one should live and die without hearing God's good news. We believe that he has uh, called us and that he has sent us to make disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ in communities where he is least known. That's what we're about. And I'm just going to throw this up here because... It needs to be thrown up. We have a lot of opportunities. And in the thing that, I know you can't read all the words that are on there, but I want you to see the colors and I want you to see the variety of things that are there. Our top five needs are in the areas of church planting, education, healthcare, business, and development. All five of those categories have a healthcare component. All five of those categories have a church planting component. All of our healthcare ministries have a church planning component. It all is intermingled, and so we approach things in that way. It would be fun, but it would take forever to show how they all interrelate. But this is just to say that um, we have over 4,000 missionaries working with us, people working together worldwide in over 70 countries, and um, pretty much 
anything goes. Not quite, but pretty much there's a lot of variety and a lot of ideas that are there. So if you want to learn more, you're welcome to come downstairs and visit us or um, go to simusa.org slash go. And that's all I'm going to say about the organization. We're here to talk about the theology of suffering. And again, as I said before, it's toward a theology of suffering. And I have several objectives for our time this afternoon. One of these is to rethink our understanding and use of Scripture. Why do I say that? Well, I'm going to talk about it a little bit more in a few minutes. But my assumption coming in here is that you're at a conference at a church that um, is focused on global missions and health. So there's a reason that you're here. And many of you have probably grown up in the church or you've had many years of engaging Christianity, engaging um, churchianity, and engaging scripture. But I also recognize that we constantly have to remember and we constantly need to be reminded that scripture has to be our foundation. That we have to have something that's external to ourselves that unites us. Even though we're going to have different understandings of the different passages and we're going to apply it in different ways, we need to have that common ground. And so the rethinking that and the understanding of that is something that I'd be remiss if I didn't say it. We all need to be reminded of this on a regular basis. So that's one of the sidebar uh, objectives that I have for our time together that you will think through and that maybe... Maybe the way that I use scripture and weave it into the conversation as we're discussing things, that it will awaken within you a desire to go deeper on your own. Another objective is that you will wrestle with the motivation for mission or ministry in general. I know not all of you are necessarily thinking that you're going to go overseas or whatever. That's a question and you're wondering and you're here and that's good. I don't have that assumption that every one of you should go overseas. But when you engage ministry, when you engage ministry right on your own street, in your neighborhood, in your uh, church, wherever you are, as you engage in that ministry, are you focused on the temporal here and now? Or are you thinking eternally? The larger picture, the bigger picture, the understanding of the glory of God. If we're motivated for ministry because of the needs around us, then the needs become primary. But if we're motivated for ministry because the glory of God is not revealed in the community that you're in, or it may be revealed but only partially, or it may be something that's you know, just sort of glimmering as a little flicker in a dark place, then it's something to think about. That's something that's going to sustain. That's something that's going to keep going. And when you yourself are going through suffering, that big doxological motivation is going to give you more impetus to keep walking than to drift back and to just look at the needs around. Does that make sense? We'll talk more about that obliquely, not directly, but it's one of the things that I want you to to catch and to think along the way. The third objective that I have for you is that you will walk out of this room resting in a deeper understanding of the goodness of God that you will hopefully and prayerfully in this time as we are together have a sense that God has been present and that he's been leading us in this conversation. I anticipate that some of what I'm sharing will um, be difficult to hear or will be uncomfortable or will be something you haven't thought about before. That's good. That means that, um, that the Holy Spirit is working in our hearts and leading us to the truth that he has promised to reveal to us. So as we get going and move on from this point of objectives and before I speak about presuppositions, I'd like to open us up in a word of prayer and commit this time to the Lord. So Father, we come before you thanking you that we are called by your name and we are able to gather together in a place like this where we have the freedom to share and to listen and to talk and to wrestle with these questions about your goodness. We thank you that you are the one who is guiding us, that you are the one who is shaping us, that you are the one that has provided everything we need to live in this world and to serve and to function and to enjoy the things that you have for us. 
We know that you did not create us for happiness, but you bring happiness into our lives. We know that you created us for the possibility and the opportunity for us to have a relationship with you. And I pray that you will continue to break our hearts for those who do not yet know you. And I pray that as we think about who you are and what we need to think about in this process, that we will see your goodness along the way. So we commit ourselves to you, thanking you again for this time in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so in any gathering of people, there are always presuppositions. There are always things that we bring into the room with us, right? When you sit down to talk with a friend, sometimes you can tell pretty quickly that that friend is carrying a heavy load. Or other times you sit down with a friend and it's lighthearted, and that relationship and the conversation is, is fun and it's good. You can tell that pretty quickly. When we come into a room like this, it's uh, late in the afternoon. Um, we had a fairly high carbohydrate lunch, and so you know it's it's easy to nod off. Well, hopefully during this time, as we're thinking through these things, um, it won't be a time to nod off, but a time to wrestle through and think. And as we wrestle with these presuppositions, I want to kind of manage our expectation well. I said this already. I just touch on it again now. I'm not going to give you the answers. I want to stimulate you. I want to be, not a burr in your saddle, but I want to stimulate you to want to dig, to want to go through the process, the arduous process that it is to wrestle through theology. Because theology isn't picking up a book and reading it and saying, oh, well, there, I've read it. Because what you've done when you did that is you've interacted with somebody else's thinking on it. But when we do theology, we ourselves are wrestling with what does God's word say about this? What do, how do I apply this in this situation? That's what theology is. And so I want to stimulate that in you and, and help you to um, start thinking in those ways and, and be excited about being able to dig and recognize that it's not going to be easy, but it'll be good. I also recognize one of my other presuppositions is that theological traditions differ. I do not come to you, as I've said, I do not come to you with answers. I know that there are many different theological backgrounds represented in this room. It's only natural. And so as we look at that and as we think about that, these traditions that are different, I'm not going to take the time to do the comparison contrast of everything all the way through because if we did that, we would need three months or six months to actually have this conversation. So I am asking you to trust that I have wrestled with it. And I'm asking you to trust that as I'm presenting, that I am doing so with an attitude of respectfulness for the differences that are there, because I acknowledge them. But I'm not going to put caveats into every statement that I make. Okay, We're going to just move through, because we only have a limited amount of time to do it. Talked about scripture as being the starting point, and I want to I want to hammer this point because there are people who think it's one voice at the theological table, but the reality is it is the table itself. If we don't have an objective something to look at and to point at and to wrestle with, then everything becomes subjective, and so we have to have it. We have to know that it's available. We have to know that we can read it. We have to know that we are going to disagree as we read it. And that's okay. Because the same Holy Spirit who, in, who guided the men who, and people who wrote the Bible is the same Holy Spirit who is guiding our hearts and our minds and our thinking as we wrestle through it. John 14, Jesus said that the Holy Spirit whom He will send will guide us into truth. He will lead us into truth. And in that guidance and in that leading, he's going to do that step by step, but he's going to use his own word to guide us to that point. So scripture is really, really necessary. Uh, It's not just a voice, but it is, I think, the voice that we can look to. I believe that God still speaks, but I also believe that when God still speaks, he speaks consistently with what he has already revealed. And so we can have that confidence because he is going to bring to our minds the things that his word reveals. And the only way he can recall to our minds what's there is if we've put it there to begin with. When was the last time you read the book of Amos? 
how quickly would you be able to find the book of Habakkuk? No? Sword drill. <laughs> Pull out your Bibles. Come on. How many of you actually have a physical Bible with you? Mine's in my backpack. I've got two of them, but most of us are using devices. One of the downsides of devices is that you only see the screen that's there. But when you actually have the physical Bible in your hand, other things fall open while you're opening it, as you're turning pages, as you see the notes that have been written in the margins. So there's a living inactiveness of the Word of God that comes from a physical book. Now, I'm not saying that don't use the digital. Yeah, use the digital. If you want to scroll, you can scroll. Um, but it's a, um, it's a different way of approaching and recognizing that we miss things. I have watched biblical literacy in our candidates coming into SIM. I have watched our biblical literacy decline as technological advances have made the Bible more easily accessible. And when we go to church and we're usually seeing it on the screen and not actually opening it up in our laps, we're losing something along the process. Again, I'm not a Luddite. I'm not against this. But just to recognize that um, there is something visceral about engaging God's Word in that way. I believe that answers can be found and that they can be held. That's to say that we can know what we know and we can know what we know with confidence. We can do that because we know that we won't know everything there is to know. We also know that we don't have to wait until we know everything there is to know before we can interact with it. So we do need to be reminded, though, we can know things and we can grab a hold of them and hold on to them confidently. Now, this last presupposition that's coming up right now is that, ro- that a robust theology is crucial. Again, we've talked about theology in the last couple of minutes, about the fact that it's an ongoing process and that we need to be wrestling and thinking and applying in real time. But the reason why a robust theology is crucial is for the exact same reason that medical professionals have to go through the training that you all have to go through. You don't want somebody who just looked at a book for about 15 minutes to pick up the scalpel and take out your appendix. You want somebody who's been well-trained, who has practiced, who's learned all of the different things along the process before they get to the situation. I promise you that when you face suffering and the kinds of suffering you're going to face, and I'm sure you have already, but when you face the things that you have not yet faced, that is not the time to start asking yourself these questions. I have been with the mom and dad whose daughter was raped. What do you do? I've sat with the family whose child died during the night. My own brother died of cerebral malaria. And another one died of leukemia. And another one died of... We don't even know why he died. But he did. So in my own family, my own growing up, this is something that has been real in, the, in our household and understanding that. When you're in the midst of the situation, it's not the time to start digging for these answers because you're already skewed in your thinking. The pain of what's going on has already filtered your ability to receive the information. So it's absolutely crucial that you grasp a hold of this, particularly in the topic of suffering, that you grasp a hold of it before you need it. Because it's only then that you can give what you have. Because if you don't yet have it, you can't give it. Right? If, if you're an empty cup, you can't pour out anything more. But if your cup of understanding is full, then it can overflow and it can sustain and it can impact the people around you. It's necessary for your own survival because I promise you, when facing certain aspects especially, facing suffering is going to challenge everything you've ever believed. Because one of the first things that happens when you're in a situation and that suffering is beginning to happen is isolation. And you begin to feel isolated and then you begin to feel abandoned and then you realize that you've been praying and you don't see any response and you think, where's God? Where did he go? Has he left? Oh, is he off helping somebody else? Are other people more important than my needs? These are the questions. Whether you think that it's going to happen or not, these are the questions you're going to ask. 
They're the questions that come up very naturally. And these are the questions that people that you are loving and serving are going to ask as they are facing it. And if you don't know where the well is to drink from, if you don't know where that living water is, then you will have nothing to pour out and to give. So it's absolutely crucial for your own survival, for your own personal growth. Because we don't remain static. We have to grow. And as we grow, we need to be nourished along the way. It's absolutely necessary for effective ministry of any type. And one of the key areas where that comes in is to help people live well, but also to help them die well. North American culture absolutely has... I don't even know how to say it well. um, Because the first things that popped in my mind is not the best way to express it in a public setting. Um, The American culture just does not get death. We do everything we can to barricade it, to sanitize it, to remove it, to to keep it so far away that it's such a foreign thing that when people actually deal with it, they don't know how to deal with it. And unless and until we know how to do that, we can't possibly step into their lives to help them, to prepare them well for death. My sister died 22 months ago of pancreatic cancer, and and we had four months of um, when the... um, a diagnosis first came. We were told we had four months and the Lord gave us 30 months uh, with her before she died. She prepared herself well. She prepared her kids well. She prepared her grandkids well for what was going to happen. It was beautiful to watch her do that. Um, she prepared my parents well to face that. And we spent a lot of time talking and praying and laughing and crying um, as we walked through that process. But it's something that we need to do, know how to do, be well prepared to do, um, well before we need to be able to do it. All right, so let's talk about some definitions. Um, When I was in philosophy back in the Dark Ages, Philosophy 101, one of the key things that we discussed is the fact that any coherent conversation must revolve around accurate definitions. In other words, you have to define your terms. I can know exactly what I mean when I use a word, but I can't know that you know exactly what I mean unless I've defined the word as I'm using it in your context. So as I have wrestled through this topic of suffering and have read in different theology works and I've read in different books on suffering, I've noticed that different traditions use the same words but with different meanings. And so it's important to understand that. So I'd like to walk through some of the words that I have wrestled with as I've um, been working on defining or thinking through um, uh, this concept of of suffering. The first word is evil. Now evil, it's just bad stuff. Okay, we're done. Let's move on, right? That made it real simple. Now evil can be divided into two categories. One is natural and one is moral. And natural evil is defined as being anything that brings suffering, unpleasantness, or difficulty to living beings. That can be an earthquake, that can be a tsunami, that can be um, a hailstorm, it can be um, blight, it can be anything that happens in the natural world and there's no malevolence involved in the situation. It's just something that happened. It's, it's going to happen. You're driving down the road and the car in front of you loses something off the back of the car. The driver of that car may have been, or truck, may have been negligent by not securing something, but his negligence in that situation was not malevolence towards you. He had no idea you were going to be in the car behind and it was going to crack your windshield. But it's it's a natural evil, something that happens. It's something that ruined your day. Those are parts of the natural evil side of it. But moral evil is malevolent. Moral evil is any willful action taken by rational beings that brings harm or distress to themselves or to others. There's a willfulness that's involved in this. When we're suffering, we feel that everything is against us. And we logically and rationally know that that's not the case, but that's how it feels. 
And so when we wrestle with that, we need to keep in mind that when people are talking about evil, sometimes they're lumping it all together. Sometimes they're talking about natural evils, and sometimes they're talking about moral evils. But we can all make the distinction and understand that, but it's important to recognize not everybody does. Some people see that natural evil is actually malevolent on a spiritual level. Totally different worldviews. But those are worldviews that are in the world around us. So we need to be mindful of that. The next word that we need to define is a word that I've used multiple times already, and it's the word suffering. Now, whenever I encounter a word, one of the first things I do is just go to Google and say define and then word. So I did that with the word suffering. It's the state of undergoing pain, distress, or hardship. Now notice the word state there. It tells us that it's a condition of something that's going on for a period of time. It's not the headache that you had last night. You might have suffered from a headache, but and you suffered it for the period of time that you have it, but it's not a life of suffering that has come from that headache. There are people who have migraines, people who have all sorts of um, pains and aches and all of those things, and all of those are legitimate, legitimate sufferings, yes. But what I mean by suffering is being something more significant. It's kind of like the difference between most people in using the word depressed or depression. They talk about uh, feeling down or feeling the blues, but it's different than the clinical depression, which is much longer. And I'm talking to medical professionals, and I'm not a medical professional, so I should just shut up. But I recognize that that is an easy one to understand, because people say, yeah, I was depressed for an afternoon. I, was an, I, was, I really felt depressed the other day. Really? No, you felt bad, and you hurt, and you were struggling with something. But the person who is dealing with the depths of depression for six months is categorically different than this situation. So let's use our words carefully. And so that's why we bring this up. Suffering, undergoing, state of undergoing pain, distress, or hardship. Now, we need to understand that suffering is relative. No two people are going to experience the same situation in exactly the same way. I know you know this, but it still needs to be heard. We still need to be reminded of it. I studied counseling and I understand these things. However, I still need to remember. No two people are going to experience the exact same thing in the same way. When my wife and I went to Japan and we were learning um, the culture and learning the language and going through all of those things, we both were encountering the same things, but some things would bother her and didn't phase me, and other things really bothered me and weren't even a blip on her radar. And so it was just the difference that's there. Suffering is the same in that. Some people will feel things very deeply, very viscerally, physically. Other people are going to be a lot more stable all the way through, but yet they're still suffering. Learning how to read that, learning how to interact with that is important, but it's important for us to understand that there is a lot of variableness in this. The next thing on that is the uh, aspect that suffering is indiscriminate. Well, what do I mean by that? Okay, indiscriminate, it means that it doesn't discriminate who it's going to attack. Not that it makes choices itself, but in suffering... Suffering hits different people at different places at different times in unexpected ways. Very rarely do we plan to suffer. Very rarely do we know what it's going to look like. And usually our expectations skew things more than they need to. And sometimes our expectations are that the situation is going to be worse than it was and then we're happy. Or we might be upset that we didn't meet our expectations even though it was suffering. Well, never mind. This question of uh, wrestling with the indiscriminate nature, why does it seem so random? Why does it seem like suffering seems to hit good people but not bad people? Why does it seem, I mean that's Psalm 73 right there. Write it down, make a note. Go back and read Psalm 73 tonight or maybe tomorrow. Read through the psalm. What does that psalm talk about? What does it say about suffering? It's a beautiful psalm that it's a, it's a lament. Um, he 
get, takes God to the mat. He raises his fist. He stamps his feet. And then how the psalm ends. Absolutely beautiful. But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. That's where, as we wrestle with an understanding of suffering, we have to come back to the nearness of God and the goodness of God as we face suffering. So Psalm 73 is a good example of this. But there's this sense about suffering that it just happens randomly and it's just that this whole world is spiraling out of control. And we need to realize that that isn't what we see from Genesis 1-1 through the end of Revelation. And as we take the time to see the overarching story line, not that the Bible is a series of stories, because sometimes we think of the Bible that way, as if it's a smorgasbord that we can take a little bit of this or a little bit of that, and, and you know, we, go, we go to the Gospels to get, get our um, vegetables, but we go to the Epistles to get our meat. You know, no, we need to look at the overarching story of Scripture to see how from beginning to end, God is revealing himself as being intimately involved. He's intimately involved in everything that's going on. That's what the Old Testament is about. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, the Pentateuch, and Deuteronomy, the Pentateuch. Some of the hardest things to read, to read through that. Because you, everybody starts off the year wanting to read through the Bible. And they get most of the way through the book of Genesis. Get about halfway into Exodus. And then all of a sudden it's like, Next? What am I going to do now? You know, Maybe I'll go to the Psalms. Maybe I'll go to the Proverbs. No. We get bogged down because we don't know how to read the Pentateuch. Did you know that the book of Leviticus and the book of Numbers all takes place in the third section of the book of Exodus? So did you know that the reason why there's so much repetition between the book of Exodus and the book of Deuteronomy is the fact that the book of Exodus is recording what happened so that the kids who were not yet alive when all these things happened would be able to look back at that. And then Moses as an old man, as old men will do, was telling all the stories to the young people that are getting ready to move into the promised land. And so he recounts all the things that are already there. But there's a different emphasis in the book of Deuteronomy. So when we read this, we see this unfolding. We, we look at the nation of Israel and say, those morons, how do they, kept, they keep making the same dumb mistakes? And then we realize that we're the morons. We do the same things. God reveals something about himself and we're excited about it. And then we move on and then we get lost again. The overarching theme of the book of Exodus is that God is with us in the dailiness of life. And he's proving to the nation of Israel that he is with them. And that he is not like the gods of the nations that they came out of. That's the whole point. So, apparently, at some point in Albert Einstein's life, some of his students asked him, Professor, do you believe that God exists? And so Einstein walked up to the blackboard, because that's what they had back then, and he drew a square on the blackboard. And on that square, he talked about all the possible knowledge that could be known in the world. And putting that square up there, he says, if this represents 100% of all the possible knowledge of all the universe, what percentage would you guess that we actually understand and so he asked the students that, and the students started a popcorn answer, you know, everything from you know, 10% to 25% that, that we gathered this much knowledge in time. And I can imagine um, uh, Albert Einstein saying, Oi, vey, I'm looking at his students. Or if you live in the Carolinas like I do, so bless your heart, y'all are so cute, um, would respond in such a way, says, yeah, I congratulate you on being that optimistic, but even on the best day, we probably haven't quite reached 2%. So if you look at the blue box up there at the lower right-hand corner, there's a little tiny red box that just represents 2%. I don't know if it is actually 2% of the total area, but it represents it. And... Albert Einstein looked at his students and he said, if all that we have come to understand fits in that tiny little box that represents 2%, is it not possible that God exists in the 98? 
So I, I come to you with this idea to say we can bring things over to understanding suffering. In the midst of suffering, we're stuck in that little 2%. We may not even quite be at 1% of understanding what's going on. But is it not possible that the randomness of how it feels is actually totally not random? That there's a God who fully understands everything else that this one incident is going to touch throughout history? Throughout the lives of people in the, in the web, of re, uh, web of influence and web of relationships? So if we can think of it that way, it might be helpful for us to realize that we can only see through this glass dimly. We cannot see with clarity because we do not know. And I know we know this, but it's something we need to rethink and we need to be reminded of. Another aspect of suffering is that it is variable. And by that I mean is there are many different kinds. There are many different kinds of suffering. We can talk about oppression. We can talk about poverty. We can talk about uh, inequality, gender inequality, um, racial inequality, um, economic inequality, all of these different things. We could break it down into all sorts of different things. We need to remember that suffering is variable. It's, in, it's relative to the situation, it's relative to the person, and it varies from situation to situation. I've seen people walk through some incredibly difficult things, not unscathed, but they've walked through them, and then the next thing that happens was just a tiny little something, but it totally knocked all the wind out of their sails. Now, it could be said that they didn't really deal with what was there before, so that's what's carried forward into what's present now, because everything's cumulative, but there's the reality that it does vary from situation to situation and place to place. Now, the next definition that I want us to think about is the concept of the goodness of God. I've used that expression a couple of times. It's something that we constantly need to remind ourselves of. Why do we need to do that? Because it's so much more than an anemic phrase that sometimes the word good lends itself toward. How was your day? It was good. How was the game? Eh, it was good. That's like talking to my sons when they were in high school. Monosyllabic answers. Um, you know, and sometimes it, they actually were clearly stated. Um, but the goodness of God is something so much more, so much broader. The way it can be defined is that the character traits, the deeds, the motives and intentions of the desires of God Now, this definition comes from all the places through Scripture where God is referred to as being good. We can find a place in Mark chapter 10 where Jesus was teaching somewhere and a a man came up to him and addressed him as good teacher. And somewhere around verse 16 or thereabouts in Mark 10, Jesus replied, Why do you call me good? There is no one who is good except for God. And yeah, that was a very important statement that Jesus made. But in this passage, we find that Jesus is identifying that only God is truly good. It's character traits, the the deeds, motives, intentions, desires of God. It's often used as a synonym for the totality of God's character. And an example of that is when Moses and God were having the little discussion about the uh, golden calf incident. He had come back up and, he was met, he, and Moses was angry with his people. And God was getting ready to move forward and say, well, you all can go do what you're going to do. And Moses said, uh-uh, I ain't going anywhere unless, I'm going, unless you're going with me. I, we need your presence. And God responded to him, I want, you to, I want you to duck into the crevice that's here. I will put my hand over you and I will allow my goodness to pass over you. Now think about that. The goodness of God, Moses had to be protected from the goodness of God. And God protected him in revealing himself in that way. This is the goodness of God. Aslan is referred to in the Chronicles of Narnia, in the first story in the um, Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And the Pevensey children are there with the beavers. And the beavers are telling them that Aslan's coming. 
And they'd never heard of Aslan. They didn't know who Aslan was. And so they're, they're asking questions. And Mrs. Beaver's all a Twitter. She's excited talking about Aslan. And Mr. Beaver is telling his story. And then one of the, one of the kids says, Is he a tame lion? And Mr. Beaver says, Aslan's not tame, but he's good. And in that one short dialogue in C.S. Lewis's children's story, he summed up the entirety of the Old Testament teaching on the character of God. He's not tame, but he's good. That's what we have to keep coming back to. Coming back to that understanding. And the book, the book of Amos has several statements in verse four, chapter 5, verse 4, 6, and 14. You see that phrase, the goodness of God, reappearing in that location. This concept of the goodness of God. But the other thing that we need to wrestle with in this understanding of the goodness of God is the sovereignty of God. And this is an expression that is used very often, particularly in one tradition, And not everybody in that one tradition uses the sovereignty of God with the same meaning. So this is why it's really important that we discuss this or that we talk about it. Because some people, when they hear the word sovereignty of God, they assume it means that um, God fatalistically determines how everything is going to go. That's not what scripture reveals. And so that's a caricature of the idea But sometimes people think of the sovereignty of God as being um, sort of like karma or sort of like kismet. It's a fatalism or a determinism and that's not what scripture reveals. What does it mean when it talks about the sovereignty of God? Well, the sovereignty of God describes God as king, as lawgiver, as covenant keeper. So the sovereignty of God, it's the word sovereign. A sovereign is a king. It's a synonym for the word king. So when the sovereign declares something, that means that the king has spoken and it's worth listening to. And so that concept of the sovereignty of God shows up. And so one thing that jumped out at me as I was wrestling through this is where Paul says in Romans chapter 9, verses 20 and 21, he says, But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to the molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay? Well, when Paul wrote those words, he was thinking back to a passage in Isaiah 29 or a passage in Jeremiah 18 where both of those men wrote about the concept of God as potter and we, his creation, as the clay that he molds. That's the sovereignty of God. He has the right. Um, I'm sure all of you have enjoyed the wonderful game known as Monopoly. My family, my parents used to refer to it as monotony. But this game Monopoly, it goes on forever and ever. Um, The game, every family seems to have its own set of rules, right? So you have different friends getting together and you're playing. Well, that's not how we play it at our house. So what happens? Somebody has to get the rule book out and look up and see what do the rules actually say. When that person gets the rule book out to look at what the rules is actually saying, that person is actually acting out the way we should respond to God. Because God is the one who declared what the rules are. He's the one that set the parameters. He's the one that set the framework. He's the one that gives the understanding that we can lean into. But all too often we feel that we have the right to stand up against him and say, what right do you have to do this? This is my life. Really? Who gave you the life? Who gave you the diaphragm that allows you to pull air in and expel air? I mean, if you read the book of Job and get to the end of the book of Job, you see that God doesn't blast Job for the things that Job says. But he asks him a series of questions. Where were you when I set the boundaries of the lands on this earth? Where were you when I taught the fish how to swim? Where were you when I set the stars in in motion? Where were you in all of those things? And obviously what the answer to that question is, but the sovereign is the one who can say that. You and I can't. The book of Exodus reveals that God is Yahweh. And in that name, Yahweh, I am he who is. 
The eternally existent, covenant-keeping God. That is the overarching definition of God's name from Genesis through the end of Malachi. The covenant-keeping God. I don't know if you know this, but Yahweh can be expressed as Yahweh. You can breathe in the... Throws my voice. You can breathe in the Yah and you can exhale the way. And a rabbi explained to me one time that uh, the reason why his name is that way is so that we will never forget that he is that intimately involved in our lives. That we need him like the very breath that we take into our lungs. That we need him as we breathe the oxygen in and exhale carbon monoxide, right? Dioxide. I always get it wrong. I'm not, a, I'm not a science guy. All right, I'll stick with theology. But breathing it in and breathing it out, we need God in that way. I think the reason why God created us as bipeds is so that we would understand that it's trust and it's obey. That we put both feet down to be able to walk because we have to trust and we have to obey. And to believe that He is the one that gives us a reason to trust and He is the one that we must obey. Because he gives us the reasons to obey him. So as we think about the sovereignty of God, we've looked at him as the God as king, as lawgiver, as covenant keeper. Um, the sovereignty of God also expresses the nature of God's omnipotence. All the way through the Old Testament, we see the name God as Elohim. We don't necessarily see Elohim in our Bibles, but it's there. Um, But we see this name of God coming all the way through. Elohim is the Mighty One, the all-powerful creator and sustainer of life. So from all the divisions of the Old Testament, as you read all the way through, the law, the history, the wisdom, the prophets, what we find is that God is omnipotently present even when He seems to be conspicuously absent. That's the thing. That right there is the thing that we forget when we're in suffering. And it's the thing that we have to know that we know that we know before we're in the midst of suffering. And you may say, well, what do I do with the person who is suffering, who is in this, in, they're in distress and they're in pain and they're not ready to receive all this information? You're right, they're not ready to receive that information. You have to know it so that you can love that person well through their suffering. Because there is a time to express and there's a time to listen. There's a time to be silent and a time to teach. And the Holy Spirit will let you know when that time is. We have a tendency to want to fill the silence and we have a tendency to want to engage very quickly. But we have to understand that we need to respond when people are ready for us to respond. So, the sovereignty of God reflects God's omniscience, but not His determination, or not His determinism, rather. He, he ordains our steps, as Psalm 37, 23, and 24. The steps of a man are established by the Lord, and he delights in his way. When he falls, he will not be hurled headlong, for the Lord is the one who holds his hand. I think one of the things that's beautiful about this is the understanding that, that there is a God who has created us with the ability to make choices that will allow ourselves to stumble, to fail, to fall on our noses. He allows us that freedom. And there's this tension that these, this verse right here shows very clearly. There's a tension between the fact that God establishing our ways, our walk, our steps, knowing intimately the footfall of our feet. That's what the picture is that they're trying to describe. He knows us that intimately. And there's this tension between understanding that concept and also recognizing that we have responsibility in the world that's around us. And these two seemingly opposing truths can be held at the same time because they don't contradict, they complement. Psalm 100 verse 3 says, Know that the Lord is God. It is He who made us and we are His. We are His people, the sheep of His pasture. 
And I emphasize that it is He who made us and we are His because that's what we forget. In American culture, we say we are our own people. We made our own lives. We've done our own things. We read the poems that say there are two roads that diverge in the path and I chose this one. We, we read the poetry that says I'm the captain of my own fate. Really, we aren't. We don't know that, but we aren't. I think sometimes God looks down at us and says, you're so cute, bless your heart. I love you. I love you. And he draws us into that love. But he, we need to remember that he is the one who made us. We are his. We are his sheep. We are his... Pa- the, we're sheeple, right? <laughs> we are his people. That's what I was almost about to say and I caught myself and then I messed it up anyway. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. See, the overarching story arc is in the Old Testament that suffering has not always existed. It is an intruder. And it's a consequence of decisions that have been made, but it is an intruder. And as an intruder, it will not always be part of what exists. So we need to recognize that. We need to recognize that suffering affects God and that He suffers with us. But we also need to rest in the hope and the knowledge that suffering will end. Now, we're almost out of time and I want to give a couple of minutes at least for some questions. Um, But... The New Testament has a whole lot to say on this topic as well. And I don't remember if I said this at the beginning and this time I did in the other session that I did it, but I intentionally focused our attention mostly on the Old Testament because most of us come from churches that almost never opened the Old Testament. And I want you to see that the Old Testament, where people tend to think that God is a God of wrath in the Old Testament and God is a God of of love in the New Testament, that it's the same God all the way through. And what we've seen as we looked in the Old Testament at these truths can be carried forward into the New Testament because all of them are revealed there as well. See, in the New Testament, we can see in Jesus' life that his life itself was marked by suffering. Isaiah said that that was going to happen. Sure enough, Jesus lived and he suffered. But Jesus didn't only suffer, he embraced the suffering. He wasn't afraid of suffering, he drew near to it. He wasn't afraid to embrace the man covered with leprosy who said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus could have just said, I am willing, and he would have been clean. But Jesus didn't just say that, he put his arms around the man. He knew he couldn't be defiled by this disease because he had mastery over the disease. This is Jesus. He didn't get mad at the woman who had the hemorrhage, who came up behind him and kind of reached over and grabbed the hem of his cloak. He didn't get mad at her because she snuck up behind him. He didn't get mad at her because she was unclean. And she touched him, a rabbi, a woman touching a man. None of that comes out in the way Jesus responded. He looked on her with love. And she was cleaned. She was healed. The beauty of that picture. The love that Jesus reveals in that. Paul's letters, you can see it all up there. I've already written down Paul's letters touches on all the different opportunities that uh, suffering affords for us. We can share in Jesus' suffering. We can uh, share in each other's suffering. And our suffering provides an opportunity for God's glory to be revealed. And Hebrews, James, and Peter all talk about the fact that suffering is a path to maturity. The whole book of 1 Peter, from beginning to end, is about suffering. In the book of Revelation, which I didn't put up on the list because the balance would have been thrown off. Um, (laughs) Yeah, I can be a little OCD sometimes. Um, The book of Revelation talks about the fact that this will end. And that there is something that we can look forward to in the hope. And yeah, there's all sorts of eschatology questions and all of that. No, you read the whole book and you read it and read the big picture and you can see clearly Jesus wins. And that's the thing we have to come back to. The secret to faith that is ready for emergencies is the quiet, practical dependence upon God day by day that makes Him real to the believing heart. 
Hudson Taylor wrote those words over 150, almost 200 years ago. He wrote those words as a young man. I guess 150 years ago. Wrote those words expressing what he had discovered in life. And we need to be reminded that it's the quiet, practical, daily dependence upon God. The breathing in, the breathing out, the trusting, the obeying, for that's what makes him real. And that's what helps us navigate through suffering. We're out of time. So, sorry for no questions, but I'm happy to talk to any of you who would like to ask some questions as we end. Um, There are some books that I put up as recommended reading, but the distances you all are from them, you'll have to walk up there and read them anyway. (laughs) Well, thank you very much.